The balance between the LDS Church's operation of its nonprofit and for-profit endeavors has always come with both benefits and repercussions. Censure of the City Creek Building Project reignited this divisive topic as critics contended that more funds should be directed toward humanitarian pursuits and less towards financial ones. It's an ongoing discussion layered with complexities as the church decides how best to generate the funds necessary to fulfill the mission of the church. The example of the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company is a micro-study in the costs and benefits of for-profit ventures. Historian Matthew C. Godfrey is an expert on the church's involvement in the sugar industry. In this episode, he discusses with me some of the challenges that face the church when it becomes involved in business. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Matthew C. Godfrey is the general editor and the managing historian of the Joseph Smith Papers. He's also a member of the Church History Department editorial board. Matthew holds a Ph.D. in American and Public History from Washington State University. Before joining the project, he was president of Historical Research Associates, a historical and archaeological consulting firm headquartered in Missoula, Montana. He is the author of Religion, Politics, and Sugar, The Mormon Church, The Federal Government, and The Utah-Idaho Sugar Company, 1907-1921, to which was a co-winner of Mormon History Association's Smith Pettit Award for Best Book. I read this book. I was fascinated. I did not know a single thing about Utah-Idaho sugar. <laughs> That's great that, that you read it. Sugar beets are not something that many people get that interested in, so I'm, I'm pleased that you enjoyed it. My husband told me when I said I was going to talk about Utah-Idaho sugar that when he was about six or seven, his mom sent him to go get some sugar in the grocery store. So he went around the corner and he picked up the CNH sugar and he brought it back to his mom and she very gently told him, no, sweetie, take this back and get the one marked you and I. Mm -hmm. And that is stuck in his memory all of these years. When did you become interested for the first time in studying the Utah sugar industry? I became interested in this when I was a graduate student at Utah State University back in the mid-1990s. While I was getting my master's degree at Utah State, I was hired by the Department of History to do an oral history project about Charles Nibley, who was the presiding bishop of the church in the early 1900s, also served as a counselor to Heber J. Grant in the First Presidency. In preparation to do this oral history project, I started to do some background research about Charles Nibley, and as I was researching in Utah State Special Collections and Archives, I came across a document. It was a document produced by the Federal Trade Commission in the 1920s, and it was a report of an investigation that they had made into the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company for unfair business practices. And so this was kind of the first document that I had seen 
about the sugar industry, and it just made me quite interested to explore more about what was going on with the church, with Charles Nibley, and with Utah-Idaho Sugar in the early 1900s. Your book on the title says from 1907 to 1921, Mm -hmm. but that's not when the church first became involved in the sugar industry. Can you tell us about the origins of that? Sure, yeah. So 1907 is when the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company was formed, but the beginnings of the church's involvement in sugar stretch back to really the 1850s. After the Saints had moved to the Great Basin, Brigham Young uh, was interested in making sure that the Saints were self-sufficient. He did not want them to be relying on outside enterprises, non-Mormons for products and for goods. And so one of the things that he explored in the 1850s was the production of sugar in Utah Territory. And he sent John Taylor, uh, one of the church's apostles, over to France to study the sugar industry there, because both Germany and France had a long history, stemming back to the late 1700s, of producing sugar from beets. And so John Taylor went over, he studied how to manufacture sugar from beets, he came back over, they purchased some equipment, they brought it over to Utah. Unfortunately, this venture didn't work. They weren't able to produce sugar from sugar beets. But it was kind of the initial step that the church took. And we might want to say that it's not an easy process. It's not. not. You can't just like, I'm going to be a sugar beet farmer today. Right. It's like many, many steps, expensive equipment. Yes. You go through that. It's fascinating that someone figured out how to do that. Right, yeah. it's, It's a very involved technology. And in fact, even though those in France and Germany had been producing sugar from beets since the late 1700s, it really didn't take off in the United States until after the Civil War. There were many attempts to try to produce sugar from beets that failed. And so, yeah, certainly Brigham Young and John Taylor were not alone in, in their failure at, at that time. So really in the late 1880s, there was renewed interest on the part of some individuals in Utah to try to produce sugar from beets. And they initially were going to try and produce sugar from sorghum cane. But when that didn't quite work out, then they turned their attention to beets. The problem was that they needed capital in order to finance the construction of a factory so that they could extract the sugar from the beets. And to get that capital, they approached Wilford Woodruff, who was president of the church at that time, and asked if the church could provide some funding, some capital uh, for this industry. And they actually found kind of a ready-made individual in Wilford Woodruff because he was interested as well at the time in getting the church involved in more businesses. And in fact, as he thought more about getting the church involved in the sugar industry, he said that he had a revelation, he had inspiration from the Lord, that it was the Lord's will that the church become involved in the sugar business. From that revelation, he met with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he instructed several of them, including Heber J. Grant and Joseph F. Smith, to go out among Utah businessmen and try to raise money for the sugar factory. They went out, they did that, they raised the necessary funds, and in 1889, the Utah Sugar Company was formed. At the time, the church didn't have a financial interest in the company. They were just kind of boosters for it. But as the 1890s wore on and as the company got into some financial difficulties, Wilford Woodruff, again, believing that God wanted this industry established, got the church involved financially in the industry. And so it's really from the 1890s that the church had a set financial interest in producing sugar. 
And that interest was twofold, wasn't it? To give the saints something to do, to earn money, and to be self-sufficient in sugar. Yes, yeah, definitely. Joseph F. Smith and Wilford Woodruff both talked about the need to provide some labor opportunities for the saints in the Great Basin. And the labor could come both as employees of the factory, working in the factory to actually extract the sugar, but it also, sugar beets became a very important cash crop to farmers in Utah and in Idaho. And that way it benefited them as well. And so there, there was this interest both in providing opportunities for the saints as well as making sure that Utah had uh, sugar that it was producing itself. So a generation of teenage boys grew up as beet diggers. <laughs> Yes, they did. And it's very interesting because if you talk to even today a certain generation, probably about 60 years and older, invariably, if they grew up in Utah, they'll say, oh, yeah, I used to thin beets or I used to top beets. It happens to me all the time that people tell me that. Now, the church had been involved in other businesses before this sugar industry business. What set their involvement apart in this case? I think it's really just the fact that Wilford Woodruff believed and said that God wanted them involved in the sugar business. I don't know, for example, that Wilford or anyone else ever claimed that God gave him a revelation to get the church involved in the cattle industry or in the salt industry or anything like that. But definitely with sugar, he said that it was the mind and will of God that the church become involved with it. And we'll see that this causes problems later as members of the church look at the church's involvement in the sugar industry and say, Zisimai, and they see a little different in the behavior of the church. Yes. So you took us up through some financial difficulties they had around the turn of the century. How did they get out of that bind? So with the Utah Sugar Company, part of it came through church funding, the church actually providing money and purchasing stock in the company. But the problem was in the 1890s, the church was having its own financial difficulties. And this came about because they were stretched a little too thin with investments that they were making in companies. Also because of the difficulties with plural marriage and the confiscation of property by the federal government. And so the church itself did not have enough money to actually provide to the Utah Sugar Company at the time. You also had the panic of 1893, a very severe financial panic that hit the United States. And that meant that there weren't a lot of people that had disposable income that they could put into the company as well. And so the real way that the Utah Sugar Company got out of the financial bind was that they approached the American Sugar Refining Company, which was the largest cane sugar refining company in the United States. It was an Eastern company but in the early 1900s, American sugar started to branch out and started to become involved in beet sugar as well. They approached Henry Havemeyer, who was the president of American sugar, and they asked him for funding as well. And so Henry Havemeyer actually purchased 50% of the stock in the Utah Sugar Company, which saved the Utah Sugar Company, allowed the company to continue, but it also meant that Henry Havemeyer and the American Sugar Refining Company, which was known in the United States at the time as the Sugar Trust, now had a large vested interest in the Utah Sugar Company. Not just the Sugar Trust, but the mother of all trusts. The mother of all trusts, that's correct. 
So now we have Eastern businessmen investing in something the church started because of a revelation. And I guess they probably sought donations on the basis that the prophet had received a revelation. Yes. How did they have to change their business practices with this, number one, big infusion of money? I was looking at the numbers. Hundreds of millions of dollars back at the turn of the century is big money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then plus, you know, Havermeyer, we don't know all the reasons he invested, except for he liked to have his fingers in all sugar. But he, of course, wanted a profit. So he would want to say something about the business practices. Right. Yeah, I think that the biggest way that this influences the company is that by tying Utah Sugar with the Sugar Trust, it means that the company is no longer producing sugar on a regional basis. It's not just producing sugar for Utah, for the Great Basin. Now it's in the national market. And because it's in the national market, that means that those operating the Utah Sugar Company now have to be very concerned about business practices so that they can make a profit. And sugar was really a cutthroat industry at the time. Prices were essentially fixed by the American Sugar Refining Company. If you undercut those prices and tried to sell beneath what American Sugar wanted you to to sell it at, They could wage a war against your business. They could have effectually put the business under, which they did to numerous sugar companies at the time. Utah Sugar not only has to be listening to Henry Havemeyer and how he wants the company run and what he thinks is beneficial, but they also have to kind of get that same mindset that Havemeyer has that in order to survive, we basically have to do whatever we need to do to make sure that we keep our share of the market. One of the things that it does is it gives this mindset to some of those running the Utah Sugar Company that basically anything goes in the sugar business because you got to keep yourself profitable. You have to keep yourself in the market. Did the church leadership ever pressure members to buy Utah-Idaho sugar? And if they did, what would that have looked like? There's a couple of different ways that this happened. Back in the 1890s, when the church was concerned about raising money for Utah sugar, they did send out some of the apostles to ask people to contribute to, to invest in the Utah Sugar Company. But there were also discourses, sermons that were given at General Conference about sugar. You have Wilford Woodruff talking about it. You have Joseph F. Smith talking about it. And they're essentially saying, we've started this fledgling sugar company, and we expect the saints to support it. I think Joseph F. Smith even went so far as to say, if you don't support the Utah Sugar Company, you might be a Mormon, but you're not a Latter-day Saint. That's like a burn statement. Exactly. Burn. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so you have this kind of pressure in the 1890s from the high church leadership, which really kind of goes away after Utah Sugar gets on firm financial ground. The high church leadership after that time doesn't really say a whole lot about sugar. But what you do have after that time is you have stake presidents, you have bishops, and other people who sometimes will pressure their congregants into supporting Utah sugar and then later Utah-Idaho sugar. And this could take the form of telling farmers that they needed to make sure that they grew beets only for the Utah-Idaho sugar company. This happened in the 19-teens up in Idaho where Utah-Idaho sugar had a factory 
and another company, the Beet Sugar Growers Company, tried to get a foothold in the area, and you had stake presidents in the area that would tell their congregations and church members there that they needed to make sure that they were only contracting with Utah-Idaho Sugar, not with this other concern. And so you kind of had those dual things. You had the high church leadership on the one hand, and then you had local leaders who could also exert pressure, both on the farmers and then on people to actually purchase the sugar as well. I read in your book where some bishops would even say, raise your hand to sustain Utah and Idaho sugar. I thought that would be really strange. That would be strange. (laughs) I'm glad that we don't do that anymore. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Then you have some of the members who are beet growers, and they might think, well, they're not, you know, Utah, Idaho is trying to make money. Mm -hmm. And of course, They want to pay the beet growers the lowest amount they can. But the beet growers are saying, hey, like with Zion Cooperative, it was all like a mutual benefit association here. So you have these outside resources. Utah-Idaho is a national company, not a regional company. That's a huge transition from how the church has participated in businesses in the past. We're not making stuff for the United Order anymore. Right. It's a really interesting period of time for the church economically, kind of this period between 1890 and 1920, the period that Thomas Alexander is referred to as Mormonism in transition. You see this transition occurring certainly socially with the end of plural marriage in 1890. You see it politically with Utah becoming a state and the efforts to have a viable two-party system in Utah. But you also see it economically. And economically, what you see is the church moving from cooperatives, from kind of the mindset of where the church dominates everything in the economy, to integration into this more national economy, where they're influenced more by national trends than they are by regional trends. They have to pay more attention to national trends. And it's not as appropriate or accepted for the church to be exerting economic influence. And so what happens, because the church, you know, is still kind of of this mindset that we're building up industry, we're investing money in these things so that our people can have employment, and therefore we want to see it succeed, and so we'll take a large role in it. You see people on a national stage looking at that and saying, wait a second, that can't happen. You can't have that kind of ecclesiastical influence over business interests. You can't be that involved in business interests. It comes at a time when the United States as a whole is very sensitive about big business. The progressive era is noted for kind of the trust-busting aspects of it, where you have Theodore Roosevelt as president, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson, all three of whom take measures to try to make sure that there's not unfair competition in business, that you don't have these large trusts and these monopolies, but that there are fair competitive conditions that exist in the United States. The church, and especially Utah-Idaho Sugar, begins running afoul of all of these trends. And you see this progressive movement and the efforts to break down big business come into play with Utah-Idaho Sugar because it is essentially a monopoly in the Great Basin over sugar. You have other sugar companies, such as the Amalgamated Sugar Company, but Amalgamated Sugar is controlled by the church as well. And so essentially, the church is running the sugar business in Utah and Idaho. And again, that creates some problems. 
So what kind of political tools did Teddy Roosevelt and the Congress have at their disposal when they wanted to dissolve this trust or or to find them guilty of having a trust? Right, yeah. So the, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890, and that was kind of the main legislation that the federal government could use to try to bust many of these trusts. You also had under Woodrow Wilson, he established the Federal Trade Commission as a way to try to regulate what businesses were doing at the time. And the Federal Trade Commission could investigate businesses. They could issue cease and desist orders against business. And so that, too, was a tool that could be used. The other thing that I think was very important at the time are just the muckraking journalism that is characteristic of the progressive era, where you had national magazines that would investigate these trusts and kind of cause national outrage and a national outcry against the trust. So you had Ida Tarbell writing about the Standard Oil Company of John D. Rockefeller, which just creates this huge uproar for regulation of the oil industry. And the church sees it as well. It comes a little bit later than some of these other muckraking articles. It really doesn't hit until about 1910. But you have a series of articles in magazines such as Harper's, Cosmopolitan, some of these other national magazines that target both the church itself as an economic interest, saying that the church has millions of dollars. Joseph F. Smith is kind of this king that has all this money and he's controlling everything economically in the area. But they also focus on the sugar industry itself. And Obviously, they didn't do any on-site research. Joseph S. Smith was very poor. <laughs> right, he was. Yeah. Um, some of them got information from Frank J. Cannon, um, mm -hmm. who was George Q. Cannon's son, who became disaffected from the church. And he wrote his own book kind of about the church under the prophet in Utah. One thing we haven't mentioned yet that's kind of odd, even when these outside interests start investing in Utah, Idaho, the president of the church is president of the sugar company. Yes. And people in high leadership in Utah and Idaho have high church leadership callings, which is totally foreign to us because nowadays the presiding bishop mm -hmm. gives up his day job. Right. That didn't happen in the early 20th century. Charles Nibley was presiding bishop, and he ran the sugar company. Right. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing, because you do. You have Joseph F. Smith, who's president of Utah, Idaho Sugar, while he's president of the church. And then after he dies and Heber J. Grant becomes president of the church, Heber J. Grant also becomes president of Utah, Idaho Sugar. And Charles Nibley is the managing director of the company for several years while he's presiding bishop. And that creates its own issues as well. Just as one example of this, when the United States is in the First World War, the federal government issues price controls for sugar because they don't want people profiteering from a sugar shortage that was occurring since France and Germany, who were both big sugar producers, were at war and were not producing things. So there's these price controls that are set. And for a time, the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company follows the price controls. But then they decide... Once the war is over, once the armistice has been put into place, that they don't need to follow the price controls anymore. The federal government had a different opinion because they realized that, that sugar prices and the sugar industry was still unstable, uh, even though peace had, had come about. Utah-Idaho sugar jacked up its prices about as high as it could, and there were several indictments issued against its directors for profiteering. 
And one of those indictments was against Charles Nibley, who's presiding bishop of the church. Now, the real interesting thing is that at the October 1920 general conference, after these indictments had been issued, or actually I think it was at the April 1920 general conference after the indictments had been issued, Heber J. Grant, president of the church, president of the sugar company, gets up in general conference, and his initial address is all about forgiveness. And he says specifically in that address, just because someone has been indicted for something doesn't mean that they are guilty. And it's very clear that he's referring to Charles Nibley, the presiding bishop, who had just been indicted. This involvement, this kind of entanglement between church leaders having ecclesiastical positions and positions with the sugar company created those kind of issues as well. So back to when they were investigated as a trust. This was interesting. They were found to be a trust, but they weren't dissolved. Right. That's what we expect to happen. And that's because there wasn't a lot of muscle behind the progressive movement. There were a lot of ideas. Right. And then when they did jack the price up when they weren't supposed to, again, they got in trouble with Congress, but no repercussions, right? Right. Yeah. And, and the real issue with that was because the Supreme Court, the judicial system of the United States, frequently overturned some of the findings of the Federal Trade Commission and of the Department of Justice. In the case of the profiteering example that I was just referring to, Charles Nibley and others are indicted under the Lever Act, which was the act that allowed Congress to establish price controls over sugar. But they're never prosecuted for this because the Supreme Court ends up declaring the Lever Act unconstitutional. And so after that declaration, all indictments under the Lever Act are quashed, and so there's never any repercussion for the profiteering that occurred. And the same thing happens with the Federal Trade Commission. So the Federal Trade Commission investigates Utah-Idaho sugar in the 19-teens and early 1920s for monopolistic practices, and they end up issuing a cease and desist order which says, yes, Utah-Idaho sugar, amalgamated sugar, they are a monopoly, they're a trust. They're guilty of unfair business practices, of colluding with each other, of pressuring people so that they only grow beets for that sugar company. So they issue the cease and desist order. But again, the judicial system becomes involved and the Supreme Court declares that the Federal Trade Commission has no jurisdiction over the sugar industry because the manufacturing of sugar does not constitute interstate commerce. And the Federal Trade Commission can only have jurisdiction over interstate commerce. And so because of that, nothing comes about with the Federal Trade Commission's decision either. It's Technicalities. It goes away. They're Technicalities. getting off on technicalities. That's right. So with all this pressure, political, legal, the church still sticks with it, probably because it's a profitable business. I think the last prophet who was president of UNI was David O. McKay. Yes, I think so. I couldn't walk into a store right now and buy Utah-Idaho sugar. No. Yeah. <laughs> I would to support the Utah <laughs> economy, though. Why do you think the LDS Church maintained its involvement in the industry with all this pressure from members and outside? The real pressure that comes about is really in this 19-teens, 1920s period. And really, after the first part of the 1920s, there's kind of a crash in the sugar industry as there is in the United States as a whole in agriculture that kind of precipitates the United States entering into the Great Depression. Once these things happen, there seems to be less and less of a concern about the involvement of the church 
in the sugar industry. Part of that, too, is because, you know, once Charles Nibley is no longer involved in the industry, I think these efforts to try to put into place some of these unfair business practices goes away. And you don't see the sugar company doing that really anymore after that time. And so there's really not much pressure after the 1920s about church involvement in the industry. Now, why they stuck it out through all of that in the 19-teens and 1920s, I think is very simple. It's because Heber J. Grant himself was convinced that Wilford Woodruff had had a revelation that the church should be involved in the sugar industry. And he, too, believed that until the Lord told them not to be in sugar anymore, they needed to maintain that interest. And I think he and Charles Nibley also believed that the church had already invested so much into seeing this become a viable industry that they needed to continue, that they shouldn't just pull out of it, but they needed to continue their efforts. And I think they also really did believe that it was a very important crop for farmers, which it was. It, it was it was a significant cash crop for farmers. And so I think they wanted to maintain their support because of that as well. Those are all reasons why the church maintains its commitment to Utah-Idaho sugar over decades. It's working. Yeah. You kind of left me with a cliffhanger because I knew there was no more Utah-Idaho sugar, but you didn't tell me how the church got out of the sugar business. Yeah. Do you want to share that? They get out of it in the 1970s, and it really comes about because of the advent of artificial sweeteners and the use of corn syrup as a sweetener in, in many things. Because of that, the industry is not that profitable. And so in the late 1970s, early 1980s, the church decides that it's no longer going to be involved in sugar production. The Utah-Idaho Sugar Company actually becomes more of a general agricultural company, AgriWest, which is located in Washington. And after the early 80s, they're not doing sugar production anymore. Utah-Idaho Sugar Company doesn't exist after really the 1970s. The Amalgamated Sugar Company, on the other hand, does still exist. It still has operating factories today. Owned by the church? Uh, no. The they sold it. Not. Yeah. You mentioned that Thomas Alexander called this time period about the turn of the century Mormonism in transition, mm -hmm. and modern historian J.B. Haas has called this time that we're living in kind of the teenage stage mm -hmm. of our church. What do you think the lasting legacies were, if any, of the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company? What did the church learn, and do you think what they learned affects how they do business now? Have you seen any indication of that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I'm I'm not sure that it has a lasting legacy in terms of affecting how the church does business today, but I think it certainly had some impact in the past. As one example, one of the things that Tom Alexander has argued as well is that when Heber J. Grant becomes president of the church, after a few years, he goes out of his way to make sure that church businesses aren't harming their competitors, not, not trying to do anything inappropriate or illegal to eliminate competition. And I think that's a direct result of what happens with the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company. I think the adverse publicity that comes about because of that convinces Heber J. Grant that it's not worth it and that the church is better off allowing competition and allowing other businesses to thrive. So I think certainly in the short term with Heber J. Grant's presidency, it, it has a direct impact on that. I don't know that any church leaders would say that they looked at the problems that Utah-Idaho Sugar had in the 19-teens and, and this affected anything, but it is interesting that the church does finally 
pull back and say that its general authorities will not sit on any boards of businesses. This doesn't happen until, what, like the 1980s, 1990s, so it's far removed from the 19-teens and 1920s. But I do think that if you look at that history, you see some of the problems that arise when you do have general authorities of the church sitting on the boards of for-profit businesses. It can create problems. And I think that's one lesson that we can learn from Utah, Idaho, Sugar, that I think that the church has put into effect, that it's not really that great of an idea to have its general authorities be on boards of directors and actively involved in business. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming and talking about this today. It was fascinating. I want to mention to listeners that Matt's book is available for free download from Utah State Press, and I will put a link to that in the show notes on our website. Also, please go to the website if you're interested in supporting transcripts for the episodes that we air. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.